Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG uh, Mental Health and Dementia Our title today is Medicine, Art and Science, and we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Paul Riley, who, well, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, I'm from Glasgow, but I trained as a doctor in Aberdeen, graduating in 1980. Uh, I, I did a year's pathology, and then I trained in general medicine, transferred into rheumatology, uh, moved down to Bath in, in England, and have never returned to Scotland. I ended up as a consultant in rheumatology in Frimley Park Hospital in Camberley, Surrey. Uh, but for the last three years of my professional life, I uh, went to Australia and was a consultant in Cairns in tropical North Queensland. How really interesting. And so you qualified in 1980. We, we, we risk our audience thinking that we're three grumpy old men in our 60s. So we'll, we'll have to make sure that we um, edit out any possible bias from that point of view and uh, help them along the way. So what degree have you got, Paul? Because we're talking about art and science and the degree that uh, we get from a university could, could, could give us a clue to what's going on. Yes, well, uh, um, older universities, you tend to graduate MBCHB, which is uh, uh, an acronym for the Latin uh, Medicinae Baccalaureus Chirurgicae Baccalaureus, meaning a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Science. More modern universities now, you tend to graduate MBBS, so that the S stands for surgery rather than CH being surgery. Thank you. So that's both medicine and surgery. And tell us a little bit about the difference. What medicine means physicians and surgeons are? Yes, in, in days gone by, uh, physicians went to university and, and uh, you know, they became doctors, as it were. But surgeons tended to be people who had access to sharp instruments for removing um, gangrenous and, and, and other types of limbs. So they were surgeons and uh, barbers. And uh, they were not they were not university graduates. They were they were lay people. So when a surgeon trains now and becomes a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, he then stops being a doctor and becomes a mister. So it's a kind of like yes, a, a, an inverse snobbery. They go back to being mister rather than doctor, or, or a miss or a missus, of course, or a miss or a missus. Yes, sorry, yes, yes, of course. Nice, nice. Yes. <laughs> question from me is whether you feel medicine is an art or a science and, and my prejudice would be that we kid ourselves that it's a science and we try and use scientific principles and evidence-based medicine but a lot of it I think is an art what, what do you feel oh I entirely agree I mean, when you apply for university of course you have to for most universities have demonstrated a certain competence in physics chemistry biology if you like science-based subjects uh, and in your, your pre-clinical years uh, in medical school, you do biochemistry, physiology, um, anatomy. So some of these, if you like, are, are certainly science-based. But in the practice of medicine, on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, as a, as a general practitioner, you don't require that much access to science to treat a sore throat. Uh, but if you're at the cutting edge of, of if you like, immunological research or cancer research, you certainly do require a certain about the scientific knowledge. I, I think I might take issue with you there uh, and stick up for my GP colleagues because 
although we may see sore throats, sometimes those sore throats will turn out to be leukemia or cancer or, or other serious conditions. So I, I think we need a, at least a, a knowledge base. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. And of course, a lot of medicine is actually like pattern recognition. It's, it's um, seeing, seeing something, you think, I've seen this before, and I recognize the pattern. I'm being able to, to realize when it is, if you like, slightly abnormal and, 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 and uh, uh, not the normal presentation. Um, and that's, that's a bit of an art and it's a bit of a science. So... It's a bit of an art and a bit of a science, and I'm just reminded while you say that. I remember whenever I would come back from holiday as a GP, actually it would take me a day to day or two to calibrate after a fortnight's holiday as to what was normal again, and one was in danger of thinking a sniffle was actually something much more serious. And when you've seen three or four sniffles, then you suddenly realise that actually that's where the calibration is, and you're able to spot with your pattern recognition the abnormal out of out of the well, spot the signal out of all the noise. Is is that the phrase? Yes, I think that that would be the accurate as I say. Uh, it's it's recognizing when something is is not as it should be, and you know, you, you people talk about you know, I, I I feel it in my bones, I feel it in my gut, you know, that my instinct tells me, and instinct, uh, you know, sensing that something is is wrong, that depends on experience. I mean, we talk about. Um, um, evidence-based medicine but a lot of what we do is actually experience-based medicine and at the very end of the spectrum of course you have prejudice-based medicine where um you, you, you don't actually apply very much science at all and experience-based medicine and pattern recognition it's it's powerful but it has its drawbacks so i can think of really serious conditions that i've only seen say meningococcal septicemia three times in 40 years as a gp I've only seen cutaneous uh, lupus once uh, in in that same time. So <laughs> we we do have to know about rare things that we don't get experience of, don't we? Oh, that, absolutely. That's that's part of the training. I mean, there's an aphorism in medicine: common things occur commonly. So the vast majority of what you see might well be things that you've seen before, but it's recognizing when actually this is slightly different to what I've seen before. Um, and as you say, rare diseases like, like lupus. I mean, in my experience, of course, as a rheumatologist, I used to see a lot of lupus, but in general practice, it's probably a lot a lot more rare. You think about it, but I probably don't see that much. And in the days when I taught medical students, I would always tell them, common things occur commonly, but rare things happen often enough to catch your eye. Absolutely, yes, exactly. One of the um, things that we use as the, as the science of diagnosis is a surgical sieve. So we might see a presentation and we're trying to work towards a diagnosis and we think, is it inflammatory? Is it uh, neoplastic? Is it vascular? And I always add an extra box for my sort of surgical sieve, which is, is it something I've seen, haven't seen before? Is it rare? And should I, you know, there's a sort of, there's a sort of a red, red light box to say, Andrew, think of something unusual because it's not one of all the others. Yes, I, I think it, it often takes a lot longer to describe than to actually do. But in our brains, we have you know a, a very rapid algorithm. First of all, you look at someone and think, does this person look basically well or basically ill? You know, and if if they're if they're not well, do you think do I think that this is something that is serious or trivial or you know bound to get better on its own? All of these kind of like binary decisions, you know, well, ill, serious. Minor blah blah, blah. happens very quickly, um, but it's it's very very important to kind of like say to yourself, 
I'm dealing with something that could be quite serious here. And how reliable do you think that is? Because I, again, I can think of conditions where somebody seems well, they've got a bit of indigestion, and, and actually they're in the throes of having a heart attack, for instance. Or um, I, I, I can think of another condition, a person I saw who had a bit of tinnitus, which I get and lots of people get, but they'd actually taken a fatal dose of aspirin and, and died six hours later. So how, how much should we trust our, our judgment? Well, if you don't trust your own judgment, whose judgment are you going to, to trust? I mean, in a consulting room, you can't say to the patient, so what do you think is wrong with yourself? The patient is there to ask you based on your knowledge, experience, uh, accumulated wisdom, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's up to the doctor to sniff that something's not, not, something not quite right about this. Um, but I, I agree. I mean, some patients underplay their symptoms. Uh, you know, they, they say, oh, I'm fine, doctor. You know, so I, don't, I wouldn't want to bother you. What we're describing is some of the art of coming to a diagnosis. And of course, the science means that you take a history, you do an examination, you go through some algorithms in your mind and thought processes. And, and Paul, you're, you're, you're a rheumatologist, but those of us involved in mental health, one has to sometimes dig quite deeply below people's defence mechanisms uh, to actually diagnose diagnose those things. Um, but it, a lot of it comes back both in history taking and and in communic and and in working with our patients to communication. Do you think that's important or not particularly? Oh, I think it's essential. And I, 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 unless I'm mistaken, the, the vast majority of cases that end up in front of the General Medical Council is usually because of problems with communication rather than you know, uh, doctors who are incompetent or you know, who don't have a knowledge base. It's usually uh, inter interpersonal communication. The, the doctor was saying something that the patient misunderstood or the patient said something that the doctor misunderstood. Um, so sometimes they're using the same terminology, but, but meaning quite different things by it. And this is what, if a patient ever said to me, no doctor, I, I suffer from migraine, I say, well, tell me what your migraine is. Does the patient actually mean migraine or do they mean attention headache? So, yes. And there would be other or, things, things like sciatica or chronic or, or lesion or all sorts of words that could mean different things to different people. Yes, I mean, if a, if a patient said, oh, my, my, my condition is chronic, you know, chronic pain is defined as more than six months duration, um, whereas... Um, Chronic inflammation is actually a kind of something you see under a microscope. So the, the, the word acute and chronic, uh, patients often use chronic when they mean severe. They often use sciatica when they mean back pain. They often use the same migraine when they when they actually mean tension headache. You know, it's you know, if, if a doctor uses a word like lesion or tumor, that's possibly going to be misunderstood. Does slang get worse? Um, with professionals using it, um, and are there any other problems that with that can throw in issues with communication? Well, yes, the the, the casual use of of acronyms uh, has to be has to be you have to be very careful about it. Really, I mean, I mean for example, someone can have um, breathlessness, and you 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 wonder if it's due to a heart problem at night, and we use the term PND, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, breathlessness that occurs at night, but PND also stands for post-nasal drip, and those mucus 
dripping down the back of your nose into your throat. So PND is two things. MS is multiple sclerosis, but it's also mitral, uh, multiple sclerosis and mitral stenosis. So uh, acronyms can cause uh, communication problems. Uh, dialect, accents. Do you think that um, some of the, the terms that we traditionally use are actually about trying to maintain a mystique and, and using unnecessarily complex and often uh, Latin or Greek derived terms, or am I am I being unfair to our profession? Uh, to, to a certain extent, we we are slightly uh, we're prisoners of our past. I mean, in, in days gone by, you couldn't really do medicine without without a basic knowledge of Latin, um, and 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 there's still a great deal of of, of Latin and, and some Greek involved. Today and and that's just the way of it. Um, possibly less so nowadays in terms of of using eponymous terms. So uh, things like Crohn's disease is if you like people named after Dr. Crohn, but regional granulomatous enteritis is if you like the, the medical expression. It's just it's a bit more cumbersome. I mean, people talk about Addison's disease, Crohn's disease. Um, but the actual terminology might be actually a little more complex. Uh, there is a drift away from using eponymous terms, the, the diseases that are named after someone famous. But uh, it can be a little bit, um, a bit unwieldy sometimes. Coming back to that Latin and Greek, there's a precision in description. So the, the positive spin of using Latin is that it's a precision. The, the negative spin would be, of course, it's one-upmanship. And uh, if you went to your doctor 250 years ago and said, I've got this red itchy rash, it's driving me mad and I don't know why I've got it. And your doctor said back to you, well, you've got a red itchy rash, it's driving you mad and I don't know why you've got it either and wanted to charge you more than half a bent groat, then uh, I think you might um, tell them to push off. Whereas if they stroked their whiskers and looked in their books. I'm sorry, I'm sounding terribly pompous because this is a sort of the archetype of the male doctor 250 years ago, and said, ah, yes, well, I've seen this before. This looks like dermatitis, rubra, incognita, lunatica, irritativa, and that'll be 15 guineas. Um, the one-upmanship yields 15 guineas more than the honesty of the vernacular. But on the other hand, you know, when you go to medical school, you essentially have to learn an entire language. You know, the hypo, hyper, micro, micro. You know, there are there are basic words that are very important in, in allowing you to communicate with other doctors. There is no point in you writing a letter to a consultant saying, uh, "Could you see this man who's got wee red spots all over?" the top of his leg or something. That, that, that's, that is not how medicine is done. And sometimes you just, you have to play by the rules when you're speaking to a colleague, but you can try and simplify them when speaking and explaining things to a patient. One of the things that I used to, to do as a consultant, and I did this for all my consultant career, every single letter that I generated to a general practitioner, the patient got a copy, a, a copy of. Exactly the same letter. I didn't try to kind of simplify it. If there was a, 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 something that the patient wanted to discuss, then they could take that letter along to the doctor and say, what does he mean by this? And I, I, I thought it, it, it reduced the, the, the number of queries that I got, uh, and I found it helpful. Coming into, uh, again, a current practice, um, a, a lot of people now will come in having Googled their symptoms in plain language uh, and come up with an answer. And, and 
if we ring, say, 111, a lot of people will have less training, but follow an algorithm. Do you think that the art of medicine, the experience that you were talking about, adds anything, or is it better to do things by algorithms? Algorithm, there are a number of approaches, algorithms, protocols, guidance. These are all similar but slightly different. So if there is guidance about how to approach something, that means that you know a doctor can, can if you like, take the guidance but interpret it, whereas a protocol is much more strict. You know, you have to follow that, that uh, and, and there's no room for manoeuvre, really. Um, but, uh, you know, I, do I mind patients coming with uh, stuff that they've looked at from Google? No. I mean, doctors now, I mean, and even I did this even, you know, at the end of my career, I used to say to the patient, I'm going to consult Professor Google here, you know, put it in and we'd, we'd look at the computer together. Whereas in the olden days, you might have to flannel a bit. Whereas nowadays, you actually have access to a great deal of information right there and then in front of you and the patient. And I, I actually thought it was, it was quite helpful. The patient realises that you know, I'm getting some up-to-date information. Absolutely. Not, uh, not just us flannelling with leeches, as we might have had to do 250 years ago, even if it was not indicated. Uh, interesting. So there's... Uh, we did do an episode a while back that uh, Peter, I think you majored on, which was and our librarians from Somerset uh, of accessing trusted health information. So that's something that our listeners might want to to go back to. Yes, I think it's when the when the patient comes with with a lot of stuff that's been downloaded, particularly if it comes from the Daily Mail, then you may be thinking, well. No, I, 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 I'm not going to take too much notice of that because if you notice, it's uh, it's it's not actually you know on the market yet. This drug coming. Thank you. That's really helpful. Coming back to um, communication, and there's a couple of things about communication I'd like to ask you about. One is um, how it has changed in your career. Of you mentioned the computer just now about having a computer in the room as opposed to having no computer in the room. And the other thing, um, I, I can't ho- help noticing that you have a, an accident that co- uh, sorry, an accident, an accent that comes from north of the English Scottish border. And how much does accent and dialect and and different words play? So first of all, computer in the room, and then secondly, it would be great to have your take on on different words that people use around the country and and accents. I think in, in days gone, before a computer was on every desk, uh, the doctor sat on one side of the, the desk, patient sat on the other side of the desk, and they could they looked each other face-to-face. So that really was a face-to-face consultation. Um, in time, this became seen as a confrontational approach. It was a kind of them and us, you know, and, um, two sides of the divide. And therefore, the patient was sat to the side of the doctor. But the problem is that... that with the computer screen, the doctor looking at the computer screen in the corner of the desk, it may be that all the patient gets to see if the doctor is the side of his head or the back of his head. And I don't think that that is an aid to communication. You miss non-verbal hints. Um, you, you don't see patients' expressions as they're using certain words. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's not a good thing. Even if it's non-confrontational, it's not helpful. Um, and as regards dialect, I mean, I, I went to University in Aberdeen. It's only 150 miles from Glasgow. It may well have been. Uh, it may as well have been a different country. The terminology is different. So a patient would say to me, "Doctor, my feet are ice-driven. That means my feet are always cold. You know, I'm totally fusionless. 
I have no energy. I'm pecked. I'm short of breath. I, think, I, I actually have no idea what you're talking about. And it took me about five years to learn the dialect and, and not make a fool of myself. And on that, um, people have interesting words for various bits of their anatomy, don't they? That can also uh, cause a little bit of confusion sometimes. Indeed. Uh, a, a, a man once said to me, I got my, my crannies caught in my spaver. And I said, I, I, I have no idea what you just said. My cranny, little finger, caught in his spaver, the zip of his trousers. And I, I think I'm only 150 miles away from home, but I may as well be on a, a different planet. It was, it was amazing. And that's for people who then come to sit at exams in places like Aberdeen or Dundee or Glasgow, and they come from the Middle East or the Far East. Well, how they ever pass those exams, I have no idea. It's really bizarre. Paul, you mentioned non-verbals just now and the computer in the room, but what about the art of observation from the point you very first see the patient in the in somebody coming to consult you in the corridor or as they come into your room? What sort of things might you be looking at or thinking about at a subconscious level? Well, uh, I mean, possibly nowadays, you know, they press a buzzer, you know, Mrs. Jones, come to, to room four. If you... If you uh, if you do that, I think that you miss things. I used to always go to the waiting room and say, you know, Mrs. McGlumphy, please come through and watch as Mrs. McGlumphy got out of the chair. Did she do it easily? Um, did she use you know, pushing with her arms? Um, what was her posture like? Was she stooped? Did she have a limp? Uh, did she look pale? Did she look short of breath? Did she look as if she was in pain? All of those the patient said nothing to you so far, but you have picked up a whole lot of clinically useful information in, in, in a few seconds. Shake the patient's hand. Is it warm or cold? Is it sweaty? You know, look at them in the face. Do they have jaundice? Do they look blue lips, pale? You know, in all of these things, uh, you, you can get lots of information free of charge just in a few seconds. And I, I, I used to find that a very helpful part. And, of course, the, the patient... This is not the examination. So they're, they're, they're it's like more natural. You're just walking towards you to enter the room rather than you know, being examined in, in the consulting room. And of course, on the, the topic of uh, the importance of observation uh, and the intersection between medicine and art, um, Sherlock Holmes was famously based on a, a Scottish pathologist, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he was, um, and of course, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, 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 an Edinburgh uh, graduate um, in medicine. I, I don't know how much medicine he actually practised in due course, but uh, yes. And, and it's, Keats, Keats came from guys, um, but thinking about observation and pathologists, examination, have you got any hints as to what makes a good examination from the patient's point of view, but also helps the doctor get lots of good in, good information. So we've we've taken the history, we've used open questions such as how can I help you rather than you know rather than close people down by saying well we've only got time to, for one problem. So um, what would you suggest about examination as as some particular hints? I think it's very important to put a patient at ease. So if you have to examine parts of the body that they're not they're not normally used to exposing to a stranger. You know, you have to have adequate exposure, but not excessive. Um, so you've got to be to be sensitive to that, particularly you know things like the you know, the elderly. Um, if you are going to put a hand in someone's abdomen, make sure that the patient can see you rubbing your hands to make sure that they're warm, right? And if you 
if you really care about someone, put your hands on their arm first and say, that's the temperature of my hands. Is that okay for you? And so that they know what the temperature of your hand is. If it's a cold day and you have poor circulation, you put an ice cold hand onto someone's abdomen, the abdominal muscles instantly contract and you're not going to find it very easily, very easy to examine that abdomen. Um, so adequate exposure, warm the hands um, and be very gentle. Say, is there anywhere that I'm going to touch that might be a bit tender? And when you finish the examination, make sure that you've helped them get the clothes back on rather than just returning to the desk and uh, letting them get on with it, particularly again if it's elderly people. And um, what would you say about chaperones, the use of chaperones? I think that this is a uh, chaperones are, are, they should be offered and, and not just, not just to, 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 to women. You should, you should say to someone, would you feel better if there was a chaperone present? And that chaperone, I, I once said, uh, I had a, a, a patient, a nurse came into the room and she sat behind and the patient said, why is the nurse here? And I said, the nurse is here as a chaperone. She said, I trust you, doctor. And I said, so do I. The chaperone is for my benefit as well as yours. And it's it, it's reassuring on, on both counts for the doctor and the patient. And really what you're referring to in, in this conversation is, is about respecting the patient, isn't it? And, and I think as, as doctors, we do respect them and, and hopefully they respect us for our our professionalism as well, it, it hopefully is a two-way street, which is very much back to the art of medicine, isn't it? Yes, and I, th I think in, in possibly in days gone by, there was a hierarchical structure. Doctors were smartly dressed, you know, they, they had that Sir Lancelot Spratt look to them, you know, they, they had, you know, a, a, an authority um, that, that, you know, that, that affording nice clothes and whatever that was, was, was part of the image, it was part of the theatre of medicine. Whereas nowadays, you're likely to go into to hospital and see even consultants wearing surgical scrubs. You know, so there's no, they, don't, they don't get to wear three-piece suits and cufflinks and whatever, they, they just dress like what doctors should do. And interestingly, I've read some science behind that, but the, the thing that you choose to wear uh, will make the patient think of you in a different way, uh, informal, casual gear will, will make you seem more approachable, formal stuff will, will make you seem more authoritative and so on. So there's actually a, a science behind the arts, isn't there? Yes. I think, you know, if you, if you fork out a lot of money and go to um, some of the places up in London, then you, you possibly expect your consultant to be wearing a, a Savile Row suit and, uh, and cufflinks and an expensive club tie. But I, I think that, that most normal people, you know, like the more approachable uh, uh, doctor rather than something that looks like a... We've covered a lot of the art of medicine and your insights, Paul, have been absolutely fascinating. But as a last word, should we be practising diagnosis-based related medicine? Should we be practising disease-related medicine? Or have you got any comments on that? Well, as, as medical students, you know, you're, you're trying to accumulate lots and lots of, and junior doctors, uh, lots of clinical experience. So, I remember people used to say, oh, you should go to Ward 26. There's a big spleen there. You think, oh, really? There's a big spleen? You mean there's, there's an unfortunate patient who's got um, uh, leukaemia and happens to have you know, a large spleen that they may allow you to operate. It's, you know, or there's a, there's a great murmur in, in the cardiology ward. You know, that was treating people as if they were, they were the disease. And you know, one size does not fit all when it comes to, to treatment. So you don't treat rheumatoid arthritis. You treat that patient with rheumatoid arthritis at that moment in time under that given set of circumstances. 
So although let's say the drug management might be methotrexate, you wouldn't give it to a pregnant woman. So it's, it's you don't treat the disease, you treat the person with the disease as appropriate at that time. And that may change. Fascinating insight. We've just got a few moments left um, before our time runs out. So I'd just like to say thank you very much to Paul for coming along and, and sharing your wisdom. And Peter, the last word for you. Absolutely. Well, I, I think I, uh, I remain of the, the belief that even though knowing the science is really important to practice good medicine, an awful lot of it has to remain an art. And I'm very happy with that. So thank you very much, Paul. That's my pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.